Welcome to This Climate Business, the podcast about turning the climate crisis into an opportunity. I'm Vincent Herringer. Every week I talk to entrepreneurs, investors and experts about what they're doing to solve the climate crisis and get New Zealand down to zero emissions by 2050 or sooner. This Climate Business is brought to you by Podcasts New Zealand. Last week, Prime Minister Jacinda Ardern declared a climate emergency. In Parliament, she said this declaration is an acknowledgement of the next generation, of the burden that they will carry if we do not get this right and do not take action now. The declaration has been a long time coming and follows the example of many other countries and cities, including some in New Zealand. So what is a climate emergency? What difference will it make? And what other other emergencies get bumped off the agenda as a result? Well, with me to discuss this move and uh, two climate campaigners and rational optimists, Melissa Clark Reynolds, a professional director and a futurist who was the first New Zealander to train with Al Gore when Al Gore was still a thing. <laughs> and and Rowan McMahon, a technology investor and an advisor with the Punakaiki Fund. Welcome both of you to this climate business. Thank you. Thank you very much. Well, let's start with you, Rowan, because um, I quoted a few words there from Jacinda. What did she actually say? What was in this declaration of a climate emergency? Well, Vincent, I think it's a continuation of some language she used back in the 2017 election campaign when she described climate change as uh, her generation's nuclear-free moment. Um, so she said that uh, the, the, the motion in Parliament uh, mentioned that she considered climate change one of the greatest challenges of our time and it called for a widespread recognition of the devastating impact that volatile and extreme weather will have on New Zealand and the welfare of New Zealanders. Um, she specifically mentioned our primary industries, water availability, public health, and on the risk side, the negatives, she mentioned flooding, sea level rise and wildfire. Um, she also mentioned an alarming uh, trend in decline in uh, species and global biodiversity. So it was quite a wide ranging statement of um, the need for a comprehensive response. Mm. She also, uh, in addition to that emergency, she made a commitment to something, didn't she, about the uh, about the public service? What was that? Yeah, very importantly, she um, committed the government towards carbon neutrality in its own operations by 2025. And I think this is where uh, the rubber starts to hit the road because, um, mm. you know, there is a, a genuine um, substantial amount of action that's going to need to take place in order for that uh, goal to be realised. I mean, for the... that. That's four years away. How, I mean, five years, I suppose, if you say December 2025. But what mm -hmm. the government is a massive emitter, I would think, compared to the rest of the economy, just given the scale of the government's activity, the assets they own, the, the fleets that they have, the um, 777s that fly around the country or break down every so often. That's exactly right. And look, it's not altogether clear how that goal will be reached. But when you just look at the scale of it in terms of, you know, 2,500 schools, it includes the eight universities around the country, um, uh, the Crown Research Institutes, it includes Kainga Aura Housing New Zealand, which is the lar largest landlord in the country, yeah. uh, it includes 20 district health boards, um, many of which run coal boilers um, for their heating. Uh, so it's, it's a, that alone is a massive program. Um, mm. And four, you know, four years and a month, if you like, is not actually a great deal of time for something of that scale. So that, from my point of view, that, that's great. Mm. Um, look, we'll, we'll get into the, the guts of that 
about how that might happen soon. But um, Melissa, what what is a climate emergency? You know, what is what's the origins of this thing? Uh, it's not a New Zealand invention, obviously. No, I mean the term's been around a long time, and it's kind of interesting. You know, I grew up, I suppose, in the, with both that climate crisis and climate emergency, and I think um, often it's just around how do you find a good brand, you know. Back in university in the 1980s, I remember studying um, climate change and we were already looking at data, particularly that was coming out of Hawaii back then, that was looking at CO2 levels and how they corresponded with the temperature on the planet. And I think back then, if I think, the idea of me even being in my 50s just sort of seemed super improbable. <laughs> and so, you know what I mean? And I am now. But, um, but it seemed quite hard as a 20-something-year-old studying to make the link between what was going to happen in 20 or 30 years with what we were doing at that time. Mm. And I think that's one of the, the reasons for these words like climate crisis or climate emergency, that we'd been using words like climate change or you know, perhaps early on people had talked about global warming and then that, that term fell out of favour because it only really described a piece of the picture. Mm. And I can see why these terms like climate crisis and climate emergency started to emerge, particularly in the early 2000s, because we wanted to get a sense across that actually we, we've been on pause for a very long time about this. Mm -hmm. The data and the science was already incontrovertible. But as human beings, we weren't able to kind of take action on the things that were in our interests for the long term. You know, mm, humans mm. just don't seem to be very good at that. Yeah. And particularly at preventing something. You know, we, we're, we're much better at dealing with something when it's in front of us. The problem with this one is that it's been in front of us, you know, for perhaps 50 years already. Mm. And or we've known about it for that long. So I, I do like these words like crisis and emergency, as long as they're not overplayed, you know, it's the idea mm. that actually the time to deal with this is now. We, we can't leave this until I'm 70, you yeah. know. Yeah. Um, New Zealand is quite late to the punch uh, with declaring this, right? Do, do you know how many other countries have declared a climate emergency? I don't. Um, you know, the first was, um, was part of Melbourne. Um, they had a, a particular... Um, Green councillor, whose name I'm just going to go blank on, um, who really pushed for that. That's and then right. we've seen, um, you know, and they, they started using the word climate emergency in Melbourne in, in kind of 2009. And by 2017, they'd adopted um, multiple measures. And I don't know if it's pronounced Darabin or Darabin or I can't do the Aussie accent, um, but they put out their climate emergency plan way back in 2017. I think Rowan can. T t tell us how to say it like a proper Aussie, Ryan. Mate, I think it might be Darabin. Darabin. There you go. And then, you know, the Club of Rome did their climate emergency plan way back in 2018. And then we've seen, like, other things too, like the movements around, like, Extinction Rebellion. Um, you know, just I think we've, we've had to bring more inflammatory language into mm -hmm. the conversation. Mm-hmm. Um, 2019, the Oxford Dictionary chose climate emergency as their word of the year. Now, obviously, this year, I suppose it's just going to be pandemic um, or pajamas. Um, <laughs> but you know, we are. I know it's only 2020 now, but 
we are quite slow. You know, after Melbourne, um, Hoboken in New Jersey was the second one, and then Berkeley, as you might expect, in California was the next. Yes. Um, I mean, even the, even the UK has declared a climate emergency before us, so that's Boris Johnson's government. Yeah. So, you know, and everybody, like Japan did it before us, South Korea, Maldives, Andorra, Bangladesh, you know, Malta, Austria, Spain, Argentina, France, Canada, the Holy See. I mean, I think the fact that Pope Francis came out Yes. Right. Um, over a year ago, almost 18 months ago, and um, and he declared it. And, and not only did he declare it, he also called for a radical energy trans- transition. So he mm. was really mm. calling for a transition away from fossil fuels. You know, we've got places like Ireland, Wales, Scotland, um, you know, and then the UK followed in behind them. But, yeah, we're all of the EU pretty much. Um, mm. So, yeah, we, we're not we're not front runners on this one at all. And in fact, um, Rohan was talking just before we started about the CCPI annual release, and that might be worth a wee comment now. Mm, yeah, tell us about that, Rohan, because um, you know we, we didn't rank very well on that index, but what is it, the CCPI? Yeah, so the Climate Change Performance Index is a um, uh, multi-country benchmark of climate policy and action. And as well as your, you know, your emissions reduction target, it, it um, compares you with other countries on measures like how much renewable energy have you got um, and what are your emissions per capita, kind of like what's your starting point as well as what's your target. And, mm. you know, we've done a lot in New Zealand to pat ourselves on the back about the Zero Carbon Act and the like in the last little while, but we forget that we have very high emissions per capita, so our starting point's not great. We rank pretty well on the renewable energy front um, in terms of our electricity supply, but we have um, a very low uptake of electric, electric vehicles and a lot of vehicular transport um, with uh, diesel and petrol fumes. Um, yeah. So on balance, the last time that index came out a year ago, we came out in the mid-30s out of 57 countries, um, which is probably a fair ranking of where we are. And we, we mm. ranked below many European countries. Um, but, you know, Australia, where I'm from, came stone motherless last. And that reflects them not having a carbon price, not having a coherent climate change policy, um, and so on and so on. So it'll be um, interesting to see at what rate they may um, get their act together. Mm. Well, you hope so. But, you know, it's, it's still no surprise that the country that relies a lot on coal exports is a country that opposes um, the reduction in coal. But let, let's talk about us for a minute. So, Rowan, what does a climate emergency actually mean in practice? So you've talked about the government um, committing itself and all of its public service to carbon neutrality. But does that translate into law or into policy or other actions that have implications for the rest of us? Yeah, I think it can and it needs to and it will. Um, it doesn't, if, if it is simply a slogan that's not backed up with, you know, firmer actions and a wider uh, engagement, then it will have failed and it will be seen as mere sloganeering. Um, I mm. think the government seems to be entirely aware of that, so they, they don't appear to be um, at risk of letting that happen. And the public service goal appears to be the first part of um, taking that pretty seriously. So I like to think that they've um, they've uh, increased the pressure on themselves and also the rest of us. You might say they've turned up the heat. Arr, arr, arr. <laughs> Sorry about that. Um, Get out. They have... Uh, They've basically, they're, they're putting themselves in a position where they have to act more strongly and more rapidly, and they're going to pr- 
presumably ask that of the rest of us too. So I expect to see that uh, local governments will be put under increasing pressure. Mm. Um, mm. The corporate sector will find itself um, under increasing pressure to respond um, and the existing responses will be questioned. People will be asking questions about whether they've gone far enough. Um, and then as households and as um, you know, stakeholders in society, mm. I think it's a good time mm. for us to um, be thinking in a wider way what's, um, what's our role in all of this. Well, where, where would you start, Melissa? Well, you know, if you, five years for the government and overall, you know, 10 or 20 years for, oh, I suppose, 2050, but really we need the action before 2030. What, what are the areas with the highest impact? I mean, if you were running a business, you would say, let's go for the low-hanging fruit, right? Yeah. Um, or, or maybe you wouldn't. What are the, what, is there low-hanging fruit and where would you start? Look, um, you know, I think there's a few just kind of backing up a little is that um, I just suppose I want to stress here that the government isn't really taking the lead. The government is doing this because everybody else has been taking the lead and they're catching up. Oh, yeah. And I think that's kind of an important one. Like, I am grateful they're doing it and I'm really supportive of the framework they're following. Um, and I'm supportive that we're finally putting these things in place. But if I come back to farming, which is where I play a lot, you know, um, at Beef and Lamb New Zealand, they they really committed to a carbon neutral agricultural system quite some years ago. And they already can measure that as a sector, the meat industry, for example, has halved its emissions while doubling output. And I think there's sort of a group, there are groups like this where we have to keep working on it. So one area with farming that I just want to hone in on is that by 2022, which is really looming up on us, we want to be able to measure at the farm level, not at the sector level. So right. we want to be able to measure every farm and know that um, what an individual farm is doing is sequestering carbon themselves, is reducing their methane output and so on. And I think really getting that moving. So obviously there's been things like you know, the greenhouse gases research and the pastoral genomics work. And so there is work going on in multiple ways. So thinking about feed, thinking about how we um, like retire land, thinking about destocking. There are multiple tools that farmers will use mm. in order to reduce their carbon impact, um, and they're already doing it. Mm. And so what we're also seeing, not just in New Zealand but around the world, is an increasing demand from consumers for carbon-neutral you know, carbon meat, for example. And so, so I just sort of don't want to forget that, um, that there are lots of sectors that are already working on this. And then even within the government, there are some agencies within the government who I think are doing better than others. So New Zealand Post, for example, has been working on this for a very long time. And they realised that, you know, those planes you were talking about around um, just how much they were driving around to deliver mail, you know, and they've put in place a range of activities that have reduced their transportation costs in particular, um, but I'm also talking about their carbon budget here. So mm -hmm. um, they're one. I know that NZTE under Peter Crisp has done a lot of work and I I've, I've, was lucky enough to hear Peter talk at a government forum recently about what they've done and you know this was pre the government like in a sense central government requiring them to do it there are mm. a number of government agencies that are well down the track so I just sort of want to do a, a bit of a shout out for them 
Mm. So the big ones are always, you know, transportation and energy I want to start with. Agriculture is interesting in New Zealand because there's still a lot of research around the role of agricultural emissions, how we measure them, and at the same time, how much we might be able to sequester on an individual farm um, with things like like increasing the, the carbon in the soil, uh, increasing forestry on farm and so on. Yes, yeah. Um, and Rowan, do you share um, Melissa's optimism that uh, large government departments, SOEs and business itself is already further down the track than what the government was uh, signalling uh, that actually didn't come as a surprise to, to big business? I think perhaps it didn't come as a surprise, but I'm I'm uh, possibly a little more sceptical than Melissa about the corporate response. I mean, last week we saw the Climate Change Coalition, sorry, Climate Leaders Coalition, come out with its annual stock take of um, some of the largest emitters in the country as to where they're up to. And now these are companies that have self-selected to agree to measure and mm. report and reduce their carbon footprints. Um, and the headline that got reported was that there had been a 3% reduction in scope one and two emissions in the last 12 months amongst those that cohort of companies and this is some really really big emitters so this is certainly good news and going in the right direction no question but to me it raised the question of where were the scope three emissions um, now uh, not to get too technical for your audience but um, scope three is the indirect or implied emissions from other parts of your value chain that are not oh, yeah. necessarily mm -hmm. not necessarily mm -hmm. the petrol that's burnt in your tank but um, for example if you take a flight it might well be that you don't own the plane um, so that could well be an example of scope three. Now, depending on the, the corporate involved and the kind of supply chain that they're in, scope three emissions can be much, much larger than scope one and two put together. And so there was a reference in the report to 90% of the members of the Climate Leaders Coalition tracking their scope three emissions. So they're tracking them, but they're not reporting them. So what's so what's driving that difference, and why? When do we get to see the scope three emissions, or do people like me have to crawl through individual annual reports and kind of put the pieces together? Um, so I have a feeling that the, the scope three emissions are not quite where we would like, and of course nationally, you know, emissions are not really falling. So um, that's consistent mm. with that um, that view. Yeah. Yeah. I, I want to be clear. I don't think that all corporates are leaping out there. Um, I just think that there are a number of them that have done some work and um, and I'm completely with you. Like the, um, There isn't enough reporting in all areas. And sometimes I think too, we're just not quite doing enough joined up thinking. And so that's where, um, you know, one of the areas that I know I've, I've spoken on your podcast about before, but I have real concerns about people being able to kind of buy credits and convert farmland into forestry and then actually not do anything about their gross emissions. Mm -hmm. So they think about, you know, how they might offset and get their net emissions down. But I actually believe that corporates, and this includes people like, you know, in New Zealand and others, need to be focusing on their gross emissions, not just on their net. Mm, I think that's such a critical point because net emissions, Rowan, are going to get us quite far down the track in terms of our forestry and, uh, you know, forestry in particular, right, is is going to help us a lot. But, but ju just explain maybe the difference, um, either of you, you know, the difference between gross and net emissions. Well, I'll give it a go if you like. Um, I mean, so think of gross emissions as a, um, a, a whole summation of different emissions across the supply chain. So it could be from energy, it could be from transport, it could be from ruminant animals if you're in agriculture, it could be from waste or process heat if you're in manufacturing. Those, those are all of the things that we're 
descending up into the sky, if you like, and then you can net that off or reduce that, if you like, by land use changes, um, which is typically um, sequestered carbon from um, informal biochar or tree planting. Um, now, I mean, the, there's a very interesting policy challenge in front of the Climate Change Commission to get that structure right. And I listened to Professor Rod Carr, the chair of the Climate Exchange Commission, a couple of weeks ago, saying that when they when they submit the emissions budgets um, in draft to the government for approval in February, he said, I'm not going to be submitting a plant and pollute model. Um, and so basically what he's saying is that I won't support a model where I, where I allow big emitters to plant trees to offset their emissions. Or if, or if he does, then it was sort of at the edge rather than that being the main yeah, way of doing it. So now I think yeah. there's a couple of reasons that's really important. First thing is we have prime agricultural land that um, that is productive for our economy. It creates a lot of jobs. And to just put that under pine would be... Um, you know, might be economically rational um, in the short term um, and it might deliver that land use change, um, but it may actually not produce the right outcome for us, um, both in jobs terms but also in environmental terms. Um, you know, if you put native forestry out there instead of pine, it grows much more slowly um, than pine forest and therefore the carbon benefit is uh, slower to be derived. Um, but of course, if you plant um, thousands of hectares in Pinus radiata, you're creating a monoculture which is foreign to New Zealand. So you're getting that negative externality of reducing biodiversity further at the same time as you're trying to save the planet. So it seems seems an odd yeah. strategy. So I thought that was very heartening to hear that from Professor Carr. I mean, this is a, a topic warm to your heart, Melissa. Um, and it kind of highlights the perverse, uh, you know, what do you call it, the uh, unintended consequences of declaring one thing an emergency and racing to solve that but causing problems down the line. Are there are there downsides to a climate emergency, declaring a climate emergency that, you know, kind of ignore some of the bigger issues? I mean, Rip, um, Ryan's just talked about biodiversity. Why don't we have a biodiversity crisis? Well, we do, actually. Well, we do have, we have a biodiversity crisis. And again, <laughs> if we look at international comparisons, you know, New Zealand ranks usually dead last or near the end in terms of, um, you know, how quickly our species are becoming threatened here. And so, yeah, one of the concerns I have is this idea of, like, making sure, and I'm, I'm heartened by what Rod Carr is saying, but making sure that we really do joined up thinking. So, you know, part of that issue for um, putting pine everywhere for me is the biodiversity issues, but also um, we want strong rural economies. Um, we know that the employment in pine forests is not particularly, um, you know, it's not solid. They don't contribute as much to a, um, a small town. So, you know, I've just done the Otago Rail Trail. I'll give you that as an example where the little towns around the rail trail are going through a resurgence of, you know, B&Bs and cafes and restaurants and secondhand shops and bike repair shops. And and that, um, I find it really interesting because a rural economy is made up of the people who work on the farms, the people who service the people who work on the farms, you know, the um, and then a few other allied, um, you know, industries that pop up around them. When we put forestry in, we don't see a great resurgence in those communities. In fact, we see a reduction in jobs. And then what we see is we tend to see the towns around those have mm -hmm. less and less services for the people who live there. So I think we have to be thinking about things like employment, biodiversity. I'm going to talk about housing as well, you know, housing and child poverty. 
um, these are other crises that New Zealand clearly has. You know, the, the number of people who are living in insecure housing situations is continuing to increase. Hmm. Um, and um, and we, we live in New Zealand in housing stock, which I, I consider some of the poorest in the developed world. Yes. You know, um, our lack of insulation, our lack of, you know, warm, dry homes. And so we should be thinking to me about how do we join up all of these issues? How do we join up our our urban planning so that we're thinking about, you know, people living in warm, dry homes where they can walk to work, <laughs> um, where they can walk to school, where they can walk to the services? Hmm. But the same thing in rural areas, you know, I spent a bit of time working in Scandinavia and, Two years ago, I was running a workshop in a very small country town surrounded by dairy farms. It was minus 14 degrees outside, and the house I was in had no heating on, and it was still 19 degrees inside. Mm. Mm. And this is good architecture, wow. and mm. um, and then they have some good urban planning as well. It was possible for me to catch the bus there from the airport. Mm. Um and that would be really difficult in New Zealand if I was, I don't know, running a workshop somewhere like Sanson, you know, or Shannon, which is about the same size. Um, I couldn't easily catch a bus there from the airport or a train or whatever mm. it might be. And if I got there, I'd have, you know, five layers of merino on and be shivering and be heating <laughs> one room. Well, at least you'd have the merino, which is good. At least um, I'd have the merino. <laughs> but I, I just want to be careful that we don't declare one thing an emergency and then look at everything through that lens and I do believe that we, you know, we have to solve the climate, we, we have to solve it, it is an emergency, it is a crisis, we also should take the opportunity to think about how we solve a couple of other crises at the same time hmm. I mean these things are, 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 yeah go for it yeah, I, I think um, if you if you remember the GFC period, uh, and I think we're old enough to do so, um, there were plenty of good initiatives around sustainability and climate change that got more or less stuck and then abandoned because people said the response to the GFC was too important. So we forgot our ability to do more than one thing at the same time. And it's really yeah. important that um, government mm. supports a green You might be able to do recovery. two things at once, but I really struggle, but, you know. Walking and chewing gum, that sort of thing. Um, Impossible. So if you think about it, you know, we've got a COVID-19 economic recovery um, and we've put a whole lot of money into wage subsidies and the like uh, and certainly support the, the necessity of those things. But we we have record low interest rates so we can afford to borrow um, a little more than perhaps in previous mm. years to support mm. some of these programs. And, um, and of course, there is an environmental imperative to doing so. As Melissa said, there's also a social imperative because, for example, with the housing stock that we have, our housing stock mm. is so poor um, that we are creating health problems for our children in not having mm. properly, mm. properly heated and insulated homes. So I was really heartened to see that the, um, the, the commitment on the government's part towards carbon neutrality in the public sector commits them to um, to a uh, minimum of four stars in new leases and minimum of five star in new builds. That's five star, um, presumably neighbours rating uh, for building uh, energy efficiency. And so for a Kaying Aura, that's really good and clear guidance to them of what the expectations are. And mm. um, then for the rest of us, um, we also need to think about these things um, in an integrated way where, you know, we, we can't solve the climate emergency and forget about the other emergencies, um, nor can we um, make the GFC mistake and say, well, we're focused on economic recovery and forget the climate recovery. Um, mm -hmm. Usually mm -hmm. what happens with an economic recession is that um, emissions go down 
and then when the econ- the economy recovers, emissions just bounce back up again. So this yeah. time has got to be different. Well, yeah. this whole idea of sort of Im- embedded climate um, uh, sort of debt isn't there. Like if you build more motorways now, we're paying back that climate debt for decades to come. Um, yeah. Whereas if we build walking infrastructure and biking infrastructure now, we solve multiple problems all at once. We solve an emissions problem, we solve a health problem, accessibility problem, and, and so on. So, so much of that kind of build back better thinking needs to happen, doesn't it, Melissa? That's what joined up thinking uh, is all about. And um, I sit on the board of Jasmax Architects, and you know we, we do a lot of schools, for example, but you know we have a, a strong um, legacy in green building. We, we built the first living building in New Zealand for Tuhoi. And um, and we recently released a an embedded carbon tool, um, which can be used in order to work out for the construction of a commercial building, in particular, what the embedded carbon will be in that. And I think we need to be not just so. I, I'm I'm glad the government's thinking about you know level four and five, but we should also be thinking about um, you know how far like can we again join these up and use all of the tools we possibly can. Um, in order to be sure that we're we're leapfrogging forward, mm. you know. Again, we go to Europe, and I know this sounds terrible, but you know, because of the Second World War, they had an opportunity to demolish a lot of poor housing stock and to replace it. And so you go across big swathes of Germany and Austria, and um, again, even in small rural towns, the housing stock is at such a high standard because they demanded, you know, triple glazing and things way before us. Yes. You know, I think sometimes we hide behind the cost here and we need to perhaps think about some of the other ways to do it. So I'll give you an example. Like we've just abandoned our attempt to build a a very, you know, a a passive um, tiny house in Roseneath in Wellington when we got our quantity surveying back and it was going to end up coming in at around $2 And um, we just kind of couldn't justify doing it. Now, I'm not saying I want my house subsidised. What I guess I'm saying is that we are a very small market and maybe some of the things we should be thinking about are how we make it easy. It's taken us a year of negotiation with the council. You know, how do we make it easy to know if I followed a particular plan that that would get consented faster? Or if I followed a particular, you know, we we argued with the council for a year over parking, for example. And I know there's now a national policy statement on parking. But some of these joined up bits would actually help us to find ways to build warm, dry houses, you know, in a way that was more cost effective. Yeah. It's so challenging to be able to do that here. I think we better, uh, there's so many great ideas and I just love the idea of, um, you know, embedding into planning a climate requirement, which is what I think this new RMA uh, or whatever is going to replace the RMA. So we'll talk about that another time. But okay. uh, in the in the time that remains, um, let's talk about winners and losers because uh, this climate emergency is, as you say, Rowan, it's sort of reinforcing a direction that's already happening. Who's going to lose in the next decade out of this momentum that's building around climate action? Well, I think the people who are, who are going to lose are those who are invested in legacy technology and don't make the effort to, to jump the chasm. Um, 
it's not easy if you're in the position of having a whole lot of um, assets out there that um, could be stranded or uh, or at risk. Um, but it should be pretty clear now that you know this this particular um, intent isn't going away. You'd have the Zero Carbon Act supported by I think it was 117 votes to one in Parliament, so it was uh, it was essentially unanimous, except for David Seymour. And um, you know those sorts of trends are going to um, to continue. Mm. Um, so. Mm. I'd like. I sort of think of the old carrot and the stick, and I think that um, the the stick's getting bigger because the carbon price gets up and is going up, and the regulatory um, burden on people who are not recognising that will increase. Um, but also the carrot's going up. I mean, you've got a uh, getting larger. You've got a reputational benefit to getting to this destination faster, um, mm. and people who are trying harder are probably um, going to reap that reputational benefit um, quickly. So they're the ones who win. Yeah. Melissa, if, if you were an entrepreneur, I know you already are, but if you're, <laughs> next time you're speaking at an entrepreneur's conference or some such, what are you saying about where to put, put your energy and effort? Well, I'm, I'm agreeing there about, like, to me, the ones who are going to lose the fastest are, are the old technologies and the particular old technologies are the energy ten- intensive ones that especially depend on things like coal and fossil fuels. So if I look globally, uh, what we're seeing is that we're seeing coal and fossil fuels surviving on subsidies. And um, without those subsidies, they can't stand up against the cost of renewables. Yeah. And so, you know, I just think if you are currently invested in those um, and you haven't got a plan to get out now, you've had 50 years, you know, (laughs) it probably is time to get on with it. And so as a company director, I think it's really good that there are things like, you know, the banking um, system has to now like explain its exposure. I think mm. that will change things. In terms of where would I invest, you know, I am investing in low-carbon economy. I think that farmers um, could easily be winners out of this because I believe that we can make a transition much faster than many of our global competitors and we should be in a situation where, particularly for the meat sector, where we can be marketing carbon neutral or carbon positive meat to the world within a very quick period of time. And I would think definitely by 2022, once we've got that on-farm testing and measurement. Mm. Right. And so I think we shouldn't just see it as a threat to farming. I think we should see it as an opportunity to get a better price than many of our international competitors. Excellent. Well, those are great answers. And um, I, I, you probably noticed I snuck in a few Twitter questions in there because we asked people on Twitter to um, give us some suggestions. Not all of them good, it must be said. Um, the one about nuclear, mm, I'm not even sure it's worth talking about, but we'll come back to that perhaps another time. But um, thanks all you uh, Twitter friends out there for giving us some questions. Uh, do keep them coming. We, we do read our Twitter feeds. Uh, in fact, I know that Rowan pretty much does nothing else all this time. Um, but uh, let me just say thank you to Melissa Clark-Reynolds and to Rowan McMahon for, for joining me today on This Climate Business. Please do, uh, I notice they do this on BBC a lot, which makes a lot of sense. You know, If you like our show, please like us and share it with others on social media. So I'm going to kind of do the same. But uh, is it too early to say Merry Christmas? Let's say no. it anyway. Yeah, people have got their trees up already. Of course they do. Merry Christmas, you two. Thanks for joining me. Merry and, Christmas. Uh, Merry Christmas. Have a great Merry week. Kilometer. Yeah, quite right. Thanks for listening to This Climate Business. I hope you enjoyed the program. 
There are more episodes as well as notes and blogs on our website, thisclimatebusiness.com. I'm Vincent Herringer, and if you know someone who deserves to be interviewed on our show, email me, vincent at thisclimatebusiness.com, or find me on Twitter, vherringer. That's two E's, one R. Meanwhile, I'll be back same time next week, and no hurrah.